As you turn there, I want to be very upfront uh, with you as we look at God's Word together this morning, unlike every other time, you know. <laughs> I always purpose to be upfront, I hope. Uh, what we're going to seek to do together is attempt the impossible. Our focus this morning is on love, and we're going to look at God's love and ours. You may remember a few weeks back that I mentioned that in the early church, the Apostle John, the, the human author of this letter, he was one of the twelve disciples who walked with Jesus, he was known as the Apostle of Love. Uh, there's this story of him that circulated in the first years of the church where he was too old to kind of walk to church by himself, so he had, there was guys that would carry him to church, and as they would carry him in to the assembly, all that John could manage to say was, was one phrase, love one another, love one another. Now perhaps when you think of love in the Bible, your mind is drawn to 1 Corinthians 13, the well-known passage that says that, that it just poetically describes love for us. It says, love is patient, love is kind. Paul concludes that chapter saying, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. But it's our passage today that has the highest concentration of talk about love of any other in Scripture. Just in these 15 verses we're going to look at, John 4, 1, 1 John 4, 7-21, these verses mention love in, in its various forms 29 times. 29 different forms of love comes up. All f- forms of the word agape. So as John moves to conclude his letter, he has, he has one care, one focus, and that is love. He wants to root and ground his readers in love. Paul echoes the same desire in his Ephesian letter. So he writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 3 that this is his prayer, that they be rooted and grounded in love. So just like John, rooted and grounded. And may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're going to attempt to do this morning. To grasp that which surpasses knowledge, to measure that which is immeasurable, to quantify the unquantifiable, to ascend to the heights that we actually can't ascend to. We're attempting the impossible, but there's really no better task for us. So let's begin by asking the Lord for help, because no doubt I need it desperately, we all need it desperately. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for the privilege of opening up your word together. Thank you that you are a God who speaks to us through your word. And may, as, as Larry prayed, may we have hearts that are soft to be conformed to the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, this morning, preach a better sermon than the one we are about to hear. This is the work that only you can do, and so we rely on you. Use my feeble words for the benefit of these people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're to 1 John 4, we're going to read together. This is God's Word to us, His, His unchanging, uh, infallible, eternal Word. We're going to begin in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us 
and sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thanks be to God for His Word. Our text this morning, it makes it crystal clear what it's all about. We see it right at the beginning, right in the first phrase in verse 7. And then we see it again at the end. We must love one another. This is the command. Love one another. This is a theme that John has come to again and again throughout this letter. No wonder he was called the apostle of love. John writes, so that we love one another. Now you may be sitting there thinking like, really? Again? I was talking to Corey last night. As I was preparing, and he, he said, Dad, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And, and I told him, God's love and loving one another. And he said, like, didn't you already do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even this past week as I studied this passage, at times it was a struggle. Because as a preacher, you can reach a point where you feel like that the biblical author, what they're saying is so clear that there must be something else. Like, I'm missing the, the deeper point. But there isn't something else. And the reality is we don't need something else. It's a funny thing to look back at some of our preaching over this past year as a church. I think of our time in Ecclesiastes and then our time in John's letter here. Both of these writers had a tendency to come back again and again to the same things. In Ecclesiastes, we were confronted with this all is vanity. Vanity of vanities. Meaninglessness of life. That's what the preacher talked about. In Ecclesiastes, we saw that purpose and meaning, they can ultimately only be found in God. And then, as we've gone, or gone through the epistle of John, John's first epistle here, we've come across the same themes again and again. John wants his readers to know who they are. He wants them to have confidence as children of God. And he does this by presenting these three different tests we've talked about. He's talked about a doctrinal test. Do you believe the right things? A moral test. Do you obey the truth? And a relational test. Do you love others? These three pillars, doctrine, obedience, and love, are the proof that we are who we say we are. So do you want to know if you are in Christ? Then look at what you believe. Doctrine. Look at what you do. Look at how you love. Then you can know. Then you can know if you're in Christ. So this is all well and good, but you'd think after John has said this again and again, And again, we've had enough, right? Like, isn't there another lesson that we can move on to? Now, in some ways, this is what John's readers were facing. 
So John's audience, the people John was writing to, they were facing people around them that identified as Christians, and they were saying they had found something new, something better, something more. They had Christianity plus. This group said that they had received special knowledge and had become these kinds of super Christians. Those who were in the church, they were tempted by this. I mean, they started to wonder, like, are we missing out on something? They, they wanted the new, the exciting, the difference-making. Without it, they wondered, like, are we really being faithful as Christ's followers? John writes to give them confidence. And he does so by telling them things they already know. But here's what we need to get this morning, church, and really every week and every day as Christ followers. The Christian life is a life of remembering. We are to be a remembering people. We remember what is true, and then we live in light of that truth. We just sang about it this morning um, in the second verse of the song, Shine Into Our Night, where uh, we chase the world. Let's see, it starts with, still we often go astray. We chase the world, forget your grace. And what do we do as we're singing that song? We're reminding ourselves, but you've never failed to bring us back. The Christian life is a life of remembering. It's about remembering theology. It's remembering truth about God theology, and then responding to it in our life. That truth does something. This is always what we are to do. As Christians and as a church, we are to come back to this truth again and again and again and again. Brothers and sisters at Grace Church, we are a same things church. And the things we come back to, they're right here, right here in this book. I don't have anything new for you this morning. In fact, week in and week out, we don't have anything new for you as a church. If you want something new, go to the Apple store this week. <laughs> Raul gets a, a shout out there. Go to the Apple store. But this is the church, brothers and sisters. This is the church. And all we have is the old, old story. Amen. And that is all we need. Yeah. And we're going to tell it again and again. Because it really is the only story that matters. One 19th century hymn says that I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings like nothing else can do. So we will tell that story again and again and again. There's this wonderful little verse in Paul's letter to the Philippian church, Philippians 3.1, where Paul writes, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Grace Church, for, for Larry and I to preach the same things to you is no trouble to me, to us, and is safe for you. So that's all kind of introductory matter. There are many places I could go in our passage this morning, but I want to focus in on answering one question this morning. Why should we love one another? The answer to this question is an attempt to comprehend the incomprehensible, to do the impossible. John here in our text brings into focus the reasons that must drive our love. Now, our big idea this morning is found right there in verse 11, and then again in verse 19. We love because He loved. We love because He first loved us. This is the truth that we need to be reminded of this morning. So let's take time together to remember His love, as John will be our guide through this passage as we look to God's love. One of the greatest ministers of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welshman, once told his church, he said, the more I study the New Testament and live the Christian life, the more convinced I am 
that our fundamental difficulty, our fundamental lack is the lack of seeing the love of God. This is primarily what we lack, seeing the love of God. It's not so much our knowledge that is defective, but our vision of the love of God. Thus, our greatest object and endeavor should be to know him better. And thus, we will love him more truly. That's our our endeavor this morning, to know him better as we see his love. So let's labor together to see this love and marvel at his love for us. And this first point is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. One, God's love for us. There's one phrase in our passage that likely jumped out at you as we read it. It's one of the more well-known phrases in all of Scripture. We see it in verse 8 and then again in verse 16. It's this, God is love. This is the critical idea for John, for John's readers, and for us today. God is love. This is our starting point. Now, in order to understand what John means when he says God is love, I think it's helpful for us to look at what he doesn't mean. In the first place, God is love does not mean love is God. This is one of the central confusions that we face in society today. It's all too easy for us to make this jump and to think that if God is love, then love is God. What does this look like, you might wonder? We see this in the proclamation of love over morality. I quoted those great British philosophers, the Beatles, a few weeks ago, who sang out, all you need is love. Love is all you need. But this is only a half-truth. And a half-truth can't save anyone. Kevin DeYoung says, as Christians, we are not trying to get people to bow down at the altar of love. We want people to fall down at the feet of Jesus, apart from whom we cannot know love. We are not trying to get people to bow down at the altar of love. We want people to fall down at the feet of Jesus, apart from whom we cannot know love. So while God is love, love is not God. The other thing that God is love does not mean is this. God is love does not mean that God is only love. Does not mean that God is only love. There are many in our culture who are well acquainted with two verses. The first is here in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. And the second is in Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Bring these two together and you have all that many want in their Christianity. But the problem with this is that it is not Christianity in any true sense. It's incomplete. If we understand God is love to mean that God is only love, then we have to ignore a number of other God is statements in Scripture. John has made one of these statements already back in chapter 1. We looked at it together. He says, God is light. God is light. So God is light. God is love. Another one we come across in the New Testament is in Hebrews 12, 29. God is a consuming fire. As Christians who believe the Bible, we can't just take those ideas which eh, sound pretty good to us and will be accepted by those around us. And then we just leave behind that which is kind of uncomfortable and awkward. So when we read God is love, we have to also take into account His righteousness, His holiness, His justice. Yes, God is love. And yes, God is a consuming fire. So to say that God is love is definitely not to say that God is only love. So that's what God is love does not mean. So what do we mean by the fact that God is love? John here is laying out something that is central to the very nature 
of God. So he's saying it is who he is. God is love. It's not all of who he is, but all of love is in him. This is that which we cannot really know, which we cannot truly comprehend. That which we cannot see, John mentions in verse 12. Have you noticed how much not being able to see God does come up in Scripture? So John mentions it twice in this passage, in verse 12, and then he hints at it again in verse 20. Or you can think back to the Old Testament. And throughout it, we hear stories of God's unapproachability. God cannot be seen. When Moses is on Mount Sinai, he wants to see God. And Moses has to hide in the cleft of a rock as the back of God passes before him. And even this is overwhelming. God is unfathomable. But before the world began, God was. We see this reality communicated by John in verse 7. Let us love one another, for love is from God. Before time, God existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. And He was completely satisfied in Himself. This is an important reality to to grasp. God had all that He needed as three in one, as the triune God. He was satisfied in Himself, loving Himself. And this was not sin. This was right because in God is everything good. Yet so great was His love for Himself that this love has been poured out. It's poured forth into creation. It poured forth into us. So love is from God. He is the fountain of love. Just like heat is from a fire or light is from the sun, love is from God. Love is a part of who God is. It's a part of His very nature. Love is from God and God is love. It is who He is. Heat is from a fire because it's heat. Light is from the sun because the sun is light. Love is from God because God is love. But while no one has seen God, God saw fit to reveal Himself to us. He saw fit to display His love in time and space. This is the central story of Scripture. It all points back to the love displayed in Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament, the first more than two-thirds of this book, looks forward to this someone who will come. This true prophet, the faithful priest, the righteous king. God promises from the beginning of Scripture that there will be a deliverer. The Messiah, Genesis 3.15, there is going to be a snake crusher, one to crush the serpent's head. He is coming. And when we come to the New Testament, that someone, that someone comes in the person of Jesus Christ. The New Testament announces that He has come and tells us of all that He did. And this is where we see God's love displayed in His coming. Verse 9 states, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how God's love is revealed. That's what manifest means. And in John's mind, there is no greater display of God's love than these next two verses. In many ways, these two verses, they really summarize all that is essential to Christian doctrine. Verse 9, God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. First, look at what this verse says about us. We're going to go down to the depths here. God sent His Son so that we might live. What does that imply about those of us sitting in this room? 
The fact that he had to be sent so that we might live implies that we are dead. That we aren't truly alive. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived. We are dead in our sins. Sure, we walk and breathe. We exist. But we don't truly live. We are slaves to our sin. We truly cannot have hope. When we have done all that we possibly can... We are still miserable failures. We are incapable of finding joy in ourselves. All we can do is look for more that won't truly satisfy us. We are dead in sin. This is who we are. But see the love of God displayed. God sent His Son. So we see here in in verse 9 about us that, that we need to be given life. God sent His Son so that we might have life. We are dead. So God sent His Son. Now, if Jesus had to be sent, then he must have been around before. Have you thought about that? None of us were sent. We were just born. We did not exist, and then we began at birth. But God sent his son. This son existed before in eternity. When he took his first breath in that stinky stable in Bethlehem, this was not his beginning. He was sent from heaven. God sent his son. Lloyd-Jones once said, you know nothing about the love of God unless you believe the doctrine of the incarnation, that God took on flesh in the form of this baby, Jesus. God sent his son, and he sent him into this world, into this world, the one we we live and breathe in, into this filthy, sin-ridden world, this broken world, God sent his son. When his mother needed somewhere to stay to deliver the baby, there was no room in the inn. There was no one to take him in. So the Lord of all glory, he was born in a stable. He was laid in a manger. He grew up as a poor carpenter. This is the the son of God, God of God, light of light. And he grew up a carpenter, a poor carpenter for 30 years. This someone labored in obscurity. This someone was sent into this selfish, self-centered world where everyone really only is looking out for number one, looking out for themselves. But God sent His Son into this world. We're going to sing a a carol around this time of year. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Laid in time, behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. God sent his son into this world. Now, if you think about a a ruler sending a representative to meet with someone from a different country, if that someone they're going to meet is important, they either go themselves or they send someone important. My wife and I, we've, we've enjoyed watching a show called Madam Secretary, and she's the secretary of state. And this comes up again and again in all these episodes where she's got to go meet somebody. Sometimes she goes, sometimes she just sends an aide that person's not that significant. So the less significant the person is, the less likely it is that someone important is going to go meet them. But God, he sends his son into the world so that we might have life. He comes himself into this world so that we might have life. This is us that we were talking about, dead in sin, and God sends his son 
for us. The great 18th century preacher Charles Spurgeon has this, 19th century preacher, has this wonderful picture of an anthill teeming with ants. He says, think about this anthill. Ants all over the place. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of them on this hill. Now think of one ant. Just imagine one. You don't, how insignificant, you don't care much for him. Spurgeon writes this, he says, but that one ant, after all, is more considerable to you than you are to God. But God sent his son. Spurgeon writes, all the inhabitants of the earth are as reputed as nothing. Spurgeon didn't write that, that's in scripture. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Spurgeon goes on, what are you even in this great city, in this D.C. area? What are you? One man, one woman. He says in London, England, I say in Washington, D.C. Who are you? In the population of the world, what a nothing you are. Yet what is the population of this world compared to the universe? I suppose that all these stars with which we see at night, all the countless worlds within our range of vision, are but as a little dust in a lone corner of God's great house. The whole solar system and all the systems of worlds we have ever thought of are but as a drop in a bucket compared with the boundless sea of creation. And even that is as nothing compared to the infinite God. So as far as you can stretch your imagination, even that is as nothing compared to the infinite God. And yet, He loved us. The insignificant creatures of an hour. He loved us. I love that phrase in Spurgeon writes. Insignificant creatures of an hour. That's who we are. We don't live like that, but that is who we are in light of the infinite God. And He loved us. Oh, see the love of God displayed. He sent His Son into the world so that we might have life. One, one poet penned it this way. He said, Jesus commissioned from above descends to men below and shows from whence the springs of love in endless currents flow. He whom the boundless heaven adores, whom angels long to see, quitted with joy those blissful shores, ambassador to me. To me, a worm, a sinful clod, a rebel all forlorn, a foe, a traitor to my God, and of a traitor born. Yet this redeeming angel came, Jesus, so vile a worm to bless. He took with gladness all my blame and gave his righteousness. God sent his son into the world so that we might have life. And we go on to verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Notice that it's God's love that's the starting point. His love is not based on our love for him or our righteousness before him. Our call to love one another doesn't begin with our response to God. It begins with God's love for us. Our, our boast is never, see what great love we have for God? Our boast is only, see what love God has shown us. So God has loved us, and verse 10 goes on, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, what does propitiation mean? That's not a word we use every day. This word means that the Son came to be an atoning sacrifice. He came to bear our punishment for our sin so that God's wrath could be removed from us. All of us, as those who are dead in sin, we are, we are cursed. We bear this curse. We are guilty, vile, and helpless and deserve... God's wrath, because he is righteous and holy. 
But Christ came not just to be the one to reconcile us to God. He came to be the reconciliation. Because of God's love, he sent his son to take on the penalty of God's wrath. The penalty that we deserved. Jesus bore it. God's love is put on display as God comes to satisfy his own wrath. God is the primary mover, the primary character in all of these scenes. He came to save sinners. He came for our sins. That's what it says at the end of verse 10. To be the propitiation for our sins. Not for our goodness. Not for our money. Not for our beauty. He came for our sins. That's all we had. Spurgeon writes, O friends, Christ never gave himself for our righteousness, but he laid down his life for our sins. He viewed us as sinners when he came to save us. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. John, as mentioned earlier in 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. This is how love from God, the God who is love, is put on display for us. Charles Wesley said it, amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Now, with this foundation laid, we can conclude by looking at the command of this passage. Love one another. And we were singing this morning in uh, the first song, Rejoice, written by Stuart Townend and Dustin Kensrew. The second verse, it says, We are children of the promise, the beloved of the Lord. You notice John uses this word twice, beloved. We are those who are loved, bought with everlasting kindness, one with sacrificial blood, bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let us go or never let them go. We are ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors of reconciliation. So because we are beloved, loved by God, we then love others. That's where John goes. Our contemplation of God, it must lead us to respond. Otherwise, it's useless. Otherwise, it's just a head game. The love of God, the love that God shows us is a practical doctrine. It shapes how we live, how we are to think, how we are to relate to one another. Look at verse 11. Beloved, as those loved by God, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We ought to do this. Just like a fish ought to swim, or as tea ought to be sweet. Those in Christ, those in Christ ought to love one another. We cannot be truly born of God and not love one another. Now this is where assurance comes in, which has just been one of John's central themes throughout this letter. He wants his readers to know who they are. So are you born of God? Then you'll love one another. Loving one another is evidence of who we really are. It's this birth, being born of God, that makes love possible. John Piper writes this. He says, The new birth is the act of the Holy Spirit connecting our dead, selfish hearts with God's living, loving heart so that His life becomes our life and His love becomes our love. We see this theme of birth come up again and again in John's letter. In our passage here, he talks about abiding, remaining in God. Those who love abide in Him and He in us. This is what happens to those who are in Christ. The Christian life is a life of living as we really are, not about living as we feel. Let me bring that down a little bit. In the context of the church and in the context of any relationship, it's easy to be offended. People let us down all the time. People sin against us. People are unkind. People say 
mean things. People do things that you don't think are very considerate. And these affect our emotions. These affect how we feel towards people. So we might want to spend a little less time with that brother or sister because of what they said or because of something they did. Our feelings change. Our feelings aren't the basis for loving one another. We love one another because we want to be obedient to God's word. And we love because he first loved us. When we look at God's love, God's love never changes. God's love is immovable, unchanging. We're to live lives based on that. We're to love one another based on that reality. Not how we live. I mean, not how we feel. We are to live as we are. So our love must be like his love. Then think back again to his love. Who did he love? He loved those who were dead, those who were sinners, those who rejected him through the way they lived their lives, through the decisions they made. This is us. This is us apart from God. Yet God loved us. And we're here to love others in the same way. In verse 20, John writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Brothers and sisters, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our, our ministry, as I mentioned earlier, we are to be ministers of reconciliation. We are to give ourselves to reconciliation. So when someone offends us, someone is unkind to us, we, there's, there's something broken in a relationship, God's call to us is to go to that person, to love, to be reconciled. Think about if you managed a water company. So you manage, maybe it's the WSSC. You manage this water company. You're responsible for all these pipes. Water goes into them all, but you find a pipe where water goes into, nothing's coming out of it though. So what do you do? You get rid of that pipe. You put a new pipe in there. As Christians, we are called to pour forth the love that God has shown us pour forth to one another. And if love is not coming out of us, as water is not coming out of us, then are we really born of God? That's what John's point is. Let God's love flow out of your life towards others. An unloving Christian is an oxymoron. An unloving Christian is one who only uses their brain, but does not let this truth affect their lives. And Grace Church, we we are blessed to be in a place where this love does pour forth. And we have examples that abound around us with this love. So I want to both encourage you and challenge you. I want to encourage you and continue loving one another. It doesn't doesn't take much to look around and see this love just pouring forth from God to one another. And I want to challenge you to continue showing that love. As you are faced with relational disappointments, as you're faced with with challenges, as you're faced with discouragement relationally, love one another. Because God has loved you a sinner. Because God has loved you as a sinner, how much more so can you love someone who is a fellow image bearer of God? Like I said at the beginning, this is not new. But this is good and it is true. This is what this, this church is built upon. It's built upon the love that God has shown us. There's one hymn that we sing on occasion. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Here is love, 
we must live in that same way. We must love in that same way. There's one other thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage. And it's this, this phrase, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence. This is verse 17. We may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but for perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. This word perfected, it means to be, to be made complete. And I want you to leave this morning encouraged by God's love. This is what God's love does as we seek to obey him. It makes us complete. And we have no fear of judgment because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can have confidence before God. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So we have no fear of judgment. I heard an illustration one time of, think about it this way, it's like a baby is born, and as this baby is born, you're told as the parent that this, this child is going to live till they're 100. And so you think, well, I mean, I've received that promise, so great, like, I'm not going to feed the baby, I'm not going to do anything for the baby, it's going to live till it's 100. That's been the promise. How absurd is that? God works through normal means, through normal obedience. And so when we are born of God, God works through commands. And he calls us to love one another. So we are to walk in obedience. This is, this is what it looks like to live the life of faith. We're not putting our trust in what we do. We're putting our trust in what God has promised to do. But as we do that, we walk in obedience. So brothers and sisters, love one another. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?